conflict can be hard. Conflict is actually necessary for a higher level of performance. We define negotiation as gathering of information and using it for influence. And the most dangerous negotiation is the one you don't know you're in. If the word yes, somebody's trying to get you to say yes, you're in a negotiation. If the words I want are in your head, you're in a negotiation. Seven or eight negotiations happen every day. It's not just over money. It's always over time. Hi, this is Joshua Spodek, and this is Leadership in the Environment. You're not the only one who cares about your impact enough to act. You're part of a global community undeterred by people saying, if others don't change first, then what I do doesn't matter, and other excuses. We've read the science. We can do this. This show is about personal responsibility, acting, and improving your life by your values. As guest after guest says, the challenge was hard, but thank you for getting me to do it. I wish I'd done it earlier. Listen on for leaders to inspire you, hear their struggles, and then act. Go to joshuaspodick.com slash podcast to commit to a public personal challenge of your own. You're not alone, and you don't have to wait for others. I recommend listening to Chris's opening quote again after this episode. There's a reason his book became the number one negotiation book. I'm tempted to start off by saying how much of a badass he is, but I'll get to that in a second. My guest today showed me a huge blind spot. This podcast is about leadership first. It's about experiential learning and developing as a leader experientially. In my teaching, I talk a lot about the flaws in relying on leadership and textbooks to learn social and emotional skills, which are fundamental to negotiation as well as leadership. Yet a book that I recommend a lot is Getting to Yes, which is a book about theory. Chris was the FBI's lead hostage negotiator. That's the badass part. His approach, beyond just book learning, is relevant to all negotiation and all leadership education, particularly relevant to environmental leadership. His book has several effective techniques that overlap with mine, plus obviously a lot more, though he has a couple decades more experience than I do, so he shares a lot more experience. The big picture is that he talks about learning negotiation, to which I would add learning leadership experientially. I indulge in this episode in exploring what's relevant to my teaching. If you like learning leadership, I think this episode will be valuable to you. Welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Joshua Spodek. I'm here with Chris Foss. Chris, how are you? Joshua, fantastic. Thanks for having me on. Glad you could be here. And I loved your book. It was, I have to say, before reading your book, I've read lots of other things on negotiation, including some of the big books. I took classes in business school on it. And I'm sure everybody says this. Your book changed a lot. You know, I talk a lot about how important it is to learn things practically in what I teach, leadership, entrepreneurship. I never really noticed in in negotiation, but I feel like that's a lot of what you've done. You didn't intend to change anything. It's like you were kind of surprised when you found out that when you went to Harvard that you could out-negotiate people there. I'm kind of curious, like, am am I right that you didn't really intend to change things, but it ended up happening anyway? (laughs) Well, I I don't know. I didn't realize, uh, having not really negotiated uh, in a private sector, in a business world that much, because my whole world was hostage negotiation, uh, how applicable the stuff was or that uh, the people in business negotiation were just, you know, trying to knock on the door of emotional intelligence, if you will. I think they sensed that it was there. I didn't know how much of a change it was going to be. I think I'm surprised by that. Yeah. A a big thing for me as a teacher, as I teach leadership and entrepreneurship, and I imagine a lot of listeners, because leadership is in the title of this podcast, that they're interested in leadership. Negotiation is a big part of leadership. 
And I think that it's still taught a lot of theory and a lot of textbook reading, reading psychology papers, but not necessarily learning the social and emotional skills of performing. And I feel like negotiation is that. And I feel like that's a big part of what you did was to come at it from a learning the social and emotional skills performance as a way to learn. Am I, am I reading that right? Yeah, you're on the right track. I mean, and it was very much, uh, it's about collaboration. I mean, and leadership is collaboration, right? I mean, real leadership is, you know, telling people what to do is not good leadership and it's not lasting. So uh, creating great collaboration, that's great leadership. And so, and great negotiation is about great collaboration. Now, when I took classes, they had me read a lot. And when you do workshops with, I guess, business leaders and other people, how do you teach them? How do you get them to learn these things? I, you got to kind of shock them out of a couple things. I think you get, and the hard stuff is, you know, you got to shock people out of this idea of rationality. I mean, everybody thinks they're rational. Most people are willing to accept, okay, well, other people are not rational, but I am, <laughs> you know, and so sometimes you, you, we'll do an exercise to shock them out of that which some people wake right up to like, wow, okay, this is perfect. And other people are so thrown by it that, that it gets in their way. Another thing we do, we, we get this hostage negotiation exercise. We, we love to simulate with a, a bank robber in a bank and I play the bank robber and I'm very demanding and it, it gets everybody on the edge of their seats. But then when I get done, I, you know, we say, I mean, how different is this from when somebody walks into your office and says, look, I need this. And you can't give it to them. And they're asking for it now. I mean, it's the exact same thing. The level of intensity uh, may or may not be there. Sometimes in a, in a real world, private sector, business life, the level of intensity is way more than, than it is with, with terrorists, as crazy as that sounds. Really? Yeah. Well, I, and I think because hostage negotiators, we don't get yelled at as much as people in business do. Like, I don't know a single business person that, has a, that can't give you five stories of people screaming at them. Uh, hostage negotiators, we, we work to smooth things out from the very beginning. We don't get screamed at. <laughs> oh, sounds like an easy job. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I saw a meme not that long ago. It was kind of funny. You know, the meme said, uh, you know, all this parenting is really sort of wearing me out. I think I'll do something less stressful, like be a hostage negotiator. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I have to share with people that, uh, I got to see you in person, uh, a couple of weeks ago at the summit and you showed this video and I props to you for the humility of showing the video of you on, I forget what new show it was. And you were showing your, um, say inexperience at looking good on camera. Oh, my bad hair day, so to speak. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> Anderson Cooper. Yeah. was on Anderson Cooper. Who has great hair. <laughs> in comparison, how fair is that? Right. Is that video online? I didn't, I haven't checked Cause if it is, I want to give people the link. If you don't mind. <laughs> It's, you know, it's, it's at the end of some of, some of the, uh, the keynotes that I have on, on our website. So uh, it, it's not online as a standalone. It's sort of our punchline, but it's on, on the end of some of the keynotes. All right. So a second ago, I asked you about how you teach people to learn this stuff. And partly when you were talking, I mean, the first thing you said was shock them out of rationality because people think that they're so rational. And coming from someone who works on leadership in an environment, rationality is there's a lot of rational reasons for people to change their behavior and virtually no one's changing behavior. It's like the, the facts are out there. The science keeps pouring in. I mean, some people may disagree with it in some areas, but I mean, no one wants mercury in their fish. No one wants, you know, plastic in the ocean and rationality only seems, seems very limited. So 
I'm curious. So you do a shock, then role play, and then I guess reflection or, or there's like discussion after the role play, it sounded like? Well, the role play, when, when we get into the role play, we find a way to, to get into stuff that people are really into. And then people, you know, we do this exercise where you talk about what you're passionate about. And we give people the skills to help the other person talk. And it's, uh, very quickly, you get into what really matters to somebody. Um, for example, one guy in one of the training sessions, he was passionate about running. About 90, less than 90 seconds later, it came out that he was passionate about running because it made him feel closer to God. He liked to run outside. And he was like, wow, you know, I never told anybody that before. And I said to, it always said to his counterpart, all right, so look, he just told you something he never told anybody. Number one, you got that about 90 seconds. Number two, how much does that tell you about who he is and what he's going to be like to work with? You know, what drives him? What are his core values? To work effectively with people, we got to know that our core values line up. You just got something out of this guy in 90 seconds. He never told anybody else before. You got a clear read on his core values. It can tell you whether or not you want to do business with him, whether or not you want to be partners with him. And then people are like, wow, this stuff is awesome. Teach me some more. This makes me think of, you know, a lot of what I find in leadership is, is I work with people to try, I, I give them techniques to get to what I call universal emotions, universal motivations, also passions. And like I was just talking with um, EO, Entrepreneurs Organization uh, chapter, and I kept getting questions like, but it's all nebulous. It's not really, I, I'm going to sound insensitive, but like they're not getting the difference between management and leadership. And I feel like you're getting to the, the core of it, that leader, leadership or an, an effective negotiation, I think it depends on really what's motivating people that they don't share up front. And I think the skills of making people feel comfortable sharing their vulnerabilities is a major skill. Is that right? I mean, it, it, they don't share things because it makes them vulnerable. Am I reading that right? Yeah. You know, and <laughs> I think people react differently to vulnerability in the word and the emotional reaction to it. I mean, I'm just talking about being honest. So you ask me to be vulnerable. I, I'll be like, vulnerable. Hey, get out of here. What do I need to be vulnerable for? And then you say, okay, well, be honest with me. Like, and I'll be like, all right, cool. I can, I can do that. <laughs> so, um, you know, different words had different sort of emotional residue for uh, people. And we want to pick one word and not everybody responds to it the same, which is why when we get into these exercises, you know, pick three words, you know, pick one word plus two synonyms. There's something about the dynamic of three that we find over and over again in, in terms of phases and in negotiations. Your perfect word might not be my perfect word. Give me two other synonyms for it. I'm going to resonate with one of those. So I asked you about vulnerability, but I think honesty and openness might be another one, but I think honesty is the one that resonates with you. Yeah. You know, honesty, integrity, but you know, I, you know, I don't respond well to the word vulnerability. It makes me imagine myself crying in a fetal position. <laughs> so I'm not going to do that, but I'm be really honest with you about who I am, what my core values are, what I'm passionate about. So different people will open up uh, to different words. So one way to get people to open up is to, is to find the language that resonates with them. And when you do that, I think that enables you to, in your case, negotiate with people, to lead them, to influence them, for them to feel comfortable following your lead. Yeah. Uh, find the language that resonates with them, but you don't have to be perfect. That's part of 
you know, what we teach people. I mean, be they, people ask us all the time, you know, what if I'm wrong? And the answer is, if you're wrong, it's awesome because you're taking an educated guess. The person on the other side is happy that you're trying. And interestingly enough, people are often most honest when they're correcting. So if you're wrong and they kick into correction mode, they're going to be really honest with you, which is what we want. This is really fascinating. You know, when I was a kid growing up, to talk about emotions was like a kind of new agey thing, especially for men. It was like, I think you're supposed to be macho. And now what you're saying is, is working on skills and, and talking about emotions and passions is in not a new agey or like nice guy way, but a practical way that's also, I feel like it, it feels good. Like, it sounds like you really enjoy the conversations that you have this way. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It, yeah. It's, you know, something is new age every five years, but we tend to continue to rediscover really classic knowledge and we put a new label on it, a new title on it. But, you know, I want to talk about people's core values. I, I want to know about who they are, what makes them tick, you know, what, what, what makes them want to leap out of bed in the morning, you know, what inspires them. Because then I'm going to know whether or not we're going to work well together. We're going to have fun. I mean, I want to have fun at work. Not everybody does. It's a core value. It's one of my company's core values. Fun. Yeah. Have a good time while we're at it. You know, and have a lot of fun, do a lot of good, uh, work really hard and learn. But some of those things scare people. Uh, I, I was always drawn to the, the people that like to work hard and have fun at the same time. And Every time I fell into a group of people like that, we did spectacular things. You know, I, when I was working terrorism in New York, you know, we did spectacular things. When I was a hostage negotiator, I was drawn to the blue collar types that like to work really hard and have a lot of fun. And that you, if you're interested in doing spectacular things, those are great core values. You have to put in a plug here for your book because it's a page turner. I mean, I read it for education but I really enjoyed it. I mean, you lived quite a life and did some amazing things. So I was more credible coming from me that like read this book. It really changes things. But back to this. So well, and, and then while we're throwing while we're throwing commercials out there for never split the difference, let me throw one out there for Tall Raws, our co-writer. And the book is really a combination of an effort of three people. My son, Brandon, who was there with me every step of the way, helped us write the book. He's an uncredited co-author. And Tall Roz. Now, Tall is a genius business book writer. And that's the reason. He is the reason the book is a page turner. It, read anything about business that Tall wrote. You are going to love it. And that's why we brought him in to be a partner with us on the book. He's a genius business writer. Writes a very entertaining book. I actually am finishing. I'm, <laughs> after we hang up, I have to go back to editing my book. And actually, actually reading your book, I researched both of you guys to see like, how did that writing get so good? So uh, I might follow up and ask you if I can talk to, if, if you can put me in touch with Tal. I'll probably edit this out. All right. No, that's cool. I mean, Tal is a fascinating dude. He'd be a great interview. Or, or a partner. You want to partner with him. I mean, he's a genius. Yeah. I mean, I saw some of the other books. Well, let me get back to, to this. So you described fun as a major core thing. And I, I was thinking, wait a minute, fun, if you're negotiating with terrorists, are you having fun with terrorists? But I would imagine having fun with your FBI uh, colleagues. But I mean, a lot of people, they really don't like empathizing with people they disagree with. They don't like understanding or getting in their spaces. Exactly the problem. And it, it was kind of, you know, empathy is only, uh, re, we only reserve empathy 
for people that we like, we agree with. And, and then we conflate empathy with sympathy, which is not accurate. And, and that was really why when I was with the FBI, we couldn't. By definition, we're going to be not just disagreeing a little bit, but on a massive level with who was going to be on the other end of the phone. And so when I started looking for people to, to collaborate with knowledge-wise, I stumbled over Harvard's definition of empathy, and it was the same definition. And I'm like, awesome, here's two massively different ends of the spectrum, hostage negotiation and sort of you know, the mecca of business negotiation. The mecca of negotiation is going to be the Harvard program on negotiation. And if we both on these extreme ends define empathy exactly the same, which is a mercenary's definition, then we can collaborate. And, and Bob Manukin wrote a great book called Beyond Winning, and it still has the best chapter on empathy I've ever read. It's the second chapter, The Tension Between Empathy and Assertiveness, um, which is a trick title. And in it, he says, empathy is not about agreeing or even liking the other side. And it's not. And if you can pull those two things out, then it gives you the ability to use empathy on everyone. And it's an unlimited skill. And I love unlimited skills. I mean, for me, it's, I try to teach empathizing with people who disagree with you. And I still have trouble myself with it. One of the ways that I, is it really hard to break people out of dis, it's like uncomfortable to empathize with someone that you disagree with. Like people say they empathize because they empathize with people that they agree with. And they don't notice that, like when you say, well, what about these people who vote opposite from you? They're like, well, they're just wrong. (laughs) Exactly. And I usually, my example is usually, this is probably over the top, but I think of like generals in World War II probably had to empathize with like Hitler. Because if you want to figure out what he's going to do next, you got to figure him out. you got to know his motivations. And if that's not uncomfortable, I don't know what is. And if they could do that, then we can too. But I feel like that's so over the top. Yeah, it, it is. But as soon as you realize what, as soon as people discover the competitive advantage that gives them, the power it gives them, and, and they go from, you know, why won't you listen to me to like, awesome, I got great influence. I just, you know, you, they get a kick out of watching the other person transform in front of their eyes. And the amount of influence that that gives you is insane. And as soon as somebody gets a taste of the power of how effective that is, then they really kind of never go back. And Okay. So when you say power, a lot of people ask me about leadership and I think people probably ask similar things about negotiation. I'm not sure. Let me know. They often ask, well, isn't that just manipulation? But I feel like it leads to a relationship that's much more productive and, and, and mutually enjoy- enjoyable. Is that what you find too? Yeah, you know, one man's manipulation is another man's uh, noble influence, if you will. I mean, you're talking about the exact same thing. You're talking about a tool, and it's really more what you're using it for. And we, we get that question a lot, and I'll say, if somebody says, hey, you're manipulating people, you know, manipulation is wrong, and I'll hold up my, my cell phone. I say, you got one of these? And they'll say, well, yeah. And I said, and I'll say, well, look, there's a lot of bad people out there using those things for a lot of evil things. So therefore you can't use that cell phone anymore because you're saying that whether or not you use a tool, the tool needs to be discarded if somebody else is using it for evil. It's just a tool. And you know, if I if I truly admire someone and I tell them that, I'm also telling them that because I'm trying to influence slash manipulate them into co- cooperating with me. So 
it's it's really in the eye of the beholder and what your intent is is what what makes a difference i also feel like the results of it are that you form more productive relationships because people want to be understood and when you empathize and not just feel it but communicate in ways that they get that you get it like if you empathize but don't share it i don't think it's the same as empathize and also let them know that for them to i I think i think this is when they say that's right yeah that's one of the distinctions that a lot of people get tripped up over what if i do actually understand and they think that somehow you know, through the universe that that understanding will be communicated. And Tall even did this because we, uh, Brandon and I sat down with Tall in New York just a couple of months ago. And he had fallen back into the habit of saying, I understand. He said, I'm trying to show people empathy, you know, and I'm telling them I understand. And we're going like, hold it, hold it, hold it. No, telling them you understand is not the same as showing them you understand. You know, the Covey advice, seek first to understand, then be understood is really uh, the black swan advice is show understanding so you can be understood. You got to, and you hit on the point exactly. You got to show that you understand. You got to tell them, you got to lay out what that understanding is. And in my experience, that opens up so much. The feeling, I describe the feeling of feeling understood is I think it's an emotion without a name, kind of like schadenfreude. We don't have it in English and it's incredibly powerful. It's like, I find it almost like as powerful as love that it's when someone doesn't feel understood, you know, they kind of, they didn't talk except that they wanted to be understood. So if that's not there, then it's, it's, it's frustrating and you get impatient and you give up on someone. But when you feel understood, I think that enables you, or when I make someone else feel understood, that enables them, they will follow my lead, whereas they won't if I don't. And if I say, if I go and say, I understand you, but you don't feel understood, it's like I'm opening myself to be judged by you when you know you and I don't. Sorry, I can't. Yeah. it's like a really you know, dangerous position. The feeling of being understood is powerful. I mean, you can feel the chemical changes. And I can, I can point to a number of different times when what someone said made me feel understood. And, you know, I sit back and sort of watch because I'm like, I'm looking forward to seeing how this feels. And it's the micro doses of flow, if you will. I mean, the most powerful chemical cocktail that we can produce. You know, serotonin, dopamine, those things get dropped into our system. And we feel incredibly good. And we don't know it, but then we feel bonded to the person that understood us. And that's where the real serious lasting influence comes from. I'm so glad to hear this. I I don't know how much listeners are getting from this. For me, this is incredible because this is really... I think a core element of leadership that a lot of people miss because they associate it with, I don't know, a guy in the corner office telling people what to do. And it sounds like it, it's really enjoyable. It sounds like it's, I mean, you said it was fun. And I feel like it's like fun is, t- is the tip of the iceberg of, of what you get out of it with the, I mean, it sounds like this is incredibly rewarding work. Yeah, it, it is. And, all, and, and fun and enjoyment. I mean, there's a, there's a great TED talk out there by Sean Acker called The Happiness Advantage. And if you're having fun, you're actually smarter. You're much more capable. You are more capable of getting more done. We did some training with, uh, with JetBlue probably about a year and a half, two years ago. And I was shocked at how fast they were picking up what we were teaching them. Because the counterintuitive emotional intelligence technique, sometimes people react negatively to it because they're so caught off guard by it. And Across the room, the JetBlue people were just getting it, and they were killing it. 
and they seem to be having fun at the same time. I remember at the end of the day, I said, you guys, you guys are fun to work with and, <laughs> and you're fun because you have fun. And on top of that, you know, I'm, I'm saying like, so it's my observation as a great instructor that you guys are having fun. And they looked at me with kind of their mouths open. They said, no, it's a core value. I mean, we stated as a company, I'm like, no kidding. They <laughs> said, yeah, that's why do you, why do you think JetBlue came from out of nowhere? You look at the number of air carriers that have come and gone and been consumed by the majors. That hasn't happened at JetBlue because their core values carry them through. They, you know, they're smart. They think things, they adapt, they survive, they thrive. And I'm absolutely convinced that one of those reasons is because they have a stated core value of having fun. It gives them tremendous resilience. You guys got, got along really well. So this is, I feel like you were a hostage negotiator. I, I doubt you've, have you done any hostage negotiation recently? Only um, in my personal life. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like something a father would say. I'm not sure. Exactly. And uh, you teach at several places and then you do a lot of corporate training. Well, I, you know, the, the book has gotten so popular and we do so much corporate and individual training now that the, the teaching at USC and Georgetown have been squeezed out. Uh, I, I didn't have the time for it anymore to do it as well as I wanted to. And, and I'm no longer teaching at either USC or Georgetown. Oh, to their loss. I, I imagine. So you're just having fun, more fun with the corporations. Oh, we're having a ball. Uh, corporations and individuals, and we're even shifting more towards individuals because companies, uh, uh, you know, there's a reason that 40% of the companies out there, out there, 40% of the Fortune 500 are going to be gone in 10 years. I mean, just gone, gone by the way, uh, the, like the dodo is gone. I mean, corporate culture is off in so many ways in so many places. And they're tremendously talented people working in corporate cultural environments. And the, the core values of the company either aren't being followed or they haven't been stated. You know, there's an interesting stat out there that says that only 6% of people in business can even state what the company's core values are. But there are a lot of superstars out there. So we're gravitating more and more towards superstars because they're, they're a lot more fun to work with. <laughs> and you're bringing fun. I meant to begin this podcast by asking you, for some kind of definition of negotiate, because I think a lot of people think of negotiation as like, oh, I don't want to do that. I, I think the, I think your book had, what, what's the root of the word is like hard stuff. Well, you know, conflict can be hard. Conflict is actually necessary for, for a higher level of performance. I mean, we, we define negotiation as, you know, gathering of information and using it for influence. And you're probably, you know, the most dangerous negotiation is one you don't know you're in. If the word yes Somebody's trying to get you to say, yes, you're in a negotiation. If the words I want are in your head, you're in a negotiation. Um, Seven or eight negotiations happen every day. It's not just over money. It's always over time. Sorry, you just blew my mind of of like how simple you just made that. So if negotiations happen all the time, if you are thinking the words I want, or if you sense that someone is trying to get you to say yes, those are like the signs that you're in in a negotiation. Good in negotiation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and good news, bad news there. Good news is you have the opportunity to practice every day. There's small stakes negotiations going on all the time. Bad news is if you're not aware of it, 
I mean, you're losing every day. And the practice, now I think of you were taking a, a skill, a performance, I mean, a performance art, I think of it as, and by mastering that performance, you go from like, I think most people, it's like, I guess looking at acting and think of it as just stage fright. But when you master it, you have the mastery of a craft means you can express yourself through it and you can, you, you look forward to the more challenging things and like salespeople are really effective. They don't think of the, of the fear walking into the negotiation or the sales. They think of how awesome it is when they leave it or when they're in it. And I feel like you bring that to negotiation, which doesn't necessarily come from just learning the theory. In fact, I don't think it will come at all from just learning the theory. No, and, and, and there's a distinction. As soon as you start thinking about how awesome it is to be in it, then outcomes have a tendency to take care of themselves. And that's a hard shift to make because people walk into negotiations really worried about the outcomes. I mean, it's a little bit like walking a tightrope. If somebody's walking a tightrope and their gaze is fixed on where they're going, they're going to fall off the tightrope. If they just focus to what they're doing in the moment, then staying on the tightrope is a pretty easy thing. And, and that's how all the great artists, the great achievers, you know, they focus on how do I do this in the moment. In baseball, the great hitters focus on their form. And they don't care what happens to the ball because they know as soon as they focus on the form, the ball's going to start going where they want it to go. So the shift in focus is, is a critical issue. And, and all the masters focus on the moment. They don't focus on the outcome. I don't know if you do case studies, but you do do role play so that people get into the moment. Is, is that to put people in the moment to experience that on a small scale first? You know, absolutely. That is the case. And in case studies or artificial role plays where you give somebody a side, like here, you're the owner of, uh, you know, this advertising agency or whatever it is. That has some application. Uh, people tend to love that in negotiation classes, but it doesn't do them that much good because you're in a fake role. So we just change things up a little bit to put you in stuff that is resonating with you in your life at that moment so that you can get the feeling of being understood and you be on both sides of it. You feel how powerful it is. And then you say like, ooh, I want that power. I want to be able to wield that power, you know, effectively to create great collaborations. Feeling inspired? Do you like hearing others acting that you're not alone? Go to joshuaspodek.com slash podcast to hear other interviews, but even more valuable, join the growing community of people who care enough to act, not just talk. Read the list of people who have taken on personal challenges and then commit to one yourself. Don't be surprised if you end up loving it, changing more, and finding people following you without you even trying. That's what happens when you improve your life by living by your values. I'm trying to imagine what your emails must be like from people who have done your programs afterward. I mean, do they come back and say, I imagine you must get a lot of life transformations, even though it's not, it doesn't seem like it's all about life, but it's taking one of the more challenging things in life and making it, giving them the opportunity to feel great, to have fun. Do you get a lot of that? Yeah, we get, you know, and we get the gamut. I mean, we get someone uh, in one of our trainings in Los Angeles here just a couple of weeks ago, somebody came up to me at the side and they said, you know, I am three times as effective as I used to be. And my company recognizes it and they're compensating it. I got another email where a guy who's negotiating $100 million deals with this stuff used it at a family reunion with a sibling who was under a lot of personal strain, and she came at him with both barrels. And he used the same stuff with her. All he wanted her to feel was heard because he knew what she was struggling with. He knew how 
hard it was. And he'd seen this happen before, and he just knew what she was struggling with. And in only making her feel heard, she sent him an email the next day saying, thank you for being my big brother. Man, that's, it's touching. It's, it's hard to comment on because it's, it's what I think most people want all the time. Yeah, yeah, it really is. It is. It's a game changer for people personally and professionally. I feel like from reading your book that that was probably a lot of using the last three words. Was that and earlier you said in 90 seconds you got to someone's core value? Was that the technique there? I'm being a little vague so listeners want to read your book to find out. Yeah, you're, you're referring to a technique that's great at getting people to elaborate and clarify and talk. And there's, there's a couple of them, you know, that's one of them. The other one is what we refer to as labels and uh, labels are insane. I mean, it's a label is when you, it's a real simple uh, negotiation tool and it's equivalent of, you know, a magic wand. I mean, you start labeling people and you get people open up really fast. I'm going to leave that. Partly I want you to get more explanation, but I think people will do better to read your book, like to find out how to implement what you just said. Read the book and and do two things. People really, they subscribe to our newsletter and it's a great supplement to the book because it's in short, sweet pieces. And there's a lot of, you know, a lot more use these words, say these things in this situation, do this. So uh, nearly everybody who's read the book also loves the newsletter and and it's it's very helpful. It's short and sweet. It comes out once a week and it's free. It's complimentary. We don't charge you for it. Can you email me the link after you hang up so I can put on the... uh... Sure. And, and, you know, there's a, there's a text to sign up function too, that works really well. I mean, if people text the message FBI empathy, all one word, uh, your, your phone is going to want to put a space between FBI and empathy. Don't let it do that. FBI empathy, all one word, lowercase to the number two, two, eight, two, eight. And that's 22, eight, 28. You send that message, uh, you get a response back and you'll sign up for the newsletter. Comes out every Tuesday morning. It's short and sweet, and it's a it's a great way to get your day rolling. I'm going to sign up. I I didn't sign up at the thing, and now I remember that it was just crowded. Because I remember you mentioned this at the at the summit. And all right, if it's okay with you, I'm going to switch. This is really a great conversation. I appreciate it. If it's okay with you, I'm going to switch to talk about the environment. Sure. And one of the reasons I brought you on is that I think the environment shares also that a lot of people look at it and they think of like changing their behavior with respect to the environment is something that they're scared of. And in my experience, it's it's very rewarding. You, you talked about fun. Since my first big change environmentally was in my food habits, I, I went to avoid packaged food for a week to see if I could do it. And it was really hard at the beginning, but eventually it became really delicious because when you cook from scratch, it's, I, I can cook much better than a, I get at a restaurant or the packaged food. And so I think of all these changes as delicious. So I always want to do them. But I think most people look at, that, look at environmental things as uh, scary. They don't want to do it. I think how a lot of people look at negotiation and I really wanted to bring your experience, your successful experience outside of the environment to in that area. That's kind of the context here. I'm curious when you think of the environment, what is it for you? Is it something that you think about much? I know I've just changed the topic a lot. I think about it a fair amount. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty conscious of plastic consumption and only in that, you know, I've, I've seen, uh, photos of where it's accumulating in the oceans and it's scary. So when we start seeing what's happening at the other end of the abuse of the environment and realize, you know, uh, it's the proverbial 
the light at the end of the tunnel is a train coming at you. When you see where what how we're harming the environment is collecting itself and realize there's a train getting ready to run us down, but we could stop it, then I then I think yeah, reacting positively to the environment then becomes a duty. It becomes a stewardship. It becomes a way to make the world a better place. That's interesting because this is actually one of the most interesting and, and engaging parts of the conversations I have. Because when I started asking this question, I thought everyone had the same answer as I did. But so for you, it's it, it starts off with a kind of scary, or maybe very scary, because a train coming at you is a pretty scary thing if you're in a tunnel. But it ends with hope, expectation of success, or I mean, you had a positive light at the end of it. Yeah, well, the opportunity to make the world a better place, that's one of the things that appeals to me. You know, I get a kick out of having having a positive impact. I mean, I, you know, it's, it's I'm sure this is going to sound very stupid and cliche and simplistic, but when I was in a Boy Scout, you know, one of the things was leave where leave it a better place. You know, we walk in, we'd walk into a, a camp, a place we're going to camp, make, you know, just make sure the place looks better than, than we found it. And that was cool. I, you know, I, I got into that. I, you know, I, I enjoy that as, as let my presence here on this globe while in this world, why I may be here, let me have an overall positive impact, leave the world a better place. So that's, it sounds like that's something that stuck with you ever since. It has. So one of the things I ask guests at their option is, well, here's what, what I say is I invite you, if you're interested, to act on what you care about. And if there's something you might consider doing, a lot of people have something in their head or that they've thought of, but I always put a, a, say a couple of things, not that you have to fix all the world's problems all by yourself overnight, because we can't do that, but also not telling other people what to do, but something measurable, not just awareness or consciousness, but to make the world a better place in some way. Is there anything that you've ever thought of doing that you might be willing to do? And, and then if so, to talk about the experience a second time. Uh, interesting question because uh, most of the stuff, <laughs> the kind of person, most of the stuff, if I think of doing it, um, I go ahead and end up doing it. It is just going to take the, the one thing that I, that I really enjoyed doing. I'm probably going to, I would love to celebrate my 70th birthday, which is a ways off, not that far off, but by uh, going on a, a expedition to Everest, not to climb it, but to pick up debris. Wow. For two hours. One, you're nowhere close to, I would never have guessed you're close to 70 as an aside. Less than a decade. I'm willing to admit that. <laughs> so Everest is really far. So if that takes you on the scale of a decade to do, I wonder if there's something smaller, that, unless, you're, unless by virtue of this podcast, you might say, you know what, I'll do it right away. But I wonder if there's something on a smaller scale that, that you might be able to do something similar. Yeah. Well, you put a bug in my head. I'm going to start thinking about it now because, you know, I, I do like the more immediate impact. I'm sure there will be something uh, and I will be more than happy to come back on the show and talk about it. I just don't know what it'll be right now. If I'm not being too pushy, do you mind if I, I'd like to go back and forth a little, partly because I think listeners generally feel something similar to what you're saying that, yeah, I do want to do something. I can't figure out what, so I try to, I nudge people to go for, to make it smart, specific, measurable, actionable, realistic, and time-based. And I don't want to push too much, but it sounds like I want to, if we go back and forth a little bit, I think it might help listeners get to there, find something similar for them to do. It, it might. <laughs> <laughs>
I mean, I could tell you what you're saying resonates with me. A couple of years ago, I gave myself another little daily thing for me to do, which is I pick up at least one piece of trash per day when I walk around. I do it in New York. Sadly, I usually don't even have to cross the street. I can do it like steps from my door. When I was in LA, it was no problem. And it's an oddly rewarding experience. Obviously, I wish that I couldn't do it because there wasn't enough trash to pick up. But it's so rewarding that that's what's making, that's what's making me feel not that uncomfortable nudging you toward something smart. Well, I like, you know, I like that. I could do that, you know, because the other issue too is, you know, how do I fold it into my daily life? And how hard is it to find out one piece of trash a day to pick up? Yeah, and I'm not saying do it for the rest of your life. Why not? Well, I mean, you could. I Actually, I think you might if you start doing it. That's another thing is I think virtually everyone who's done this is they, afterward, they feel really great about it. And they tend to say things like, well, that was a lot easier than I thought. I wish I'd done it earlier. Or I really like doing it. That was hard, but I'm, I'm really glad because it's something I've wanted to do. Yeah, no, I like it. Okay, cool. So uh, also to, to do what I did, to, to pick up at least one piece of trash a day, and then I just put it in the trash or recycling. Yeah. I actually have learned all the, most New York City, I live in Manhattan, and most corners have trash cans, but a couple have recycling bins. And I make a point when I'm near the recycling bins to get recycling stuff and not just trash stuff. Yeah, that is a good one for New York because you don't got to walk. You're going to find trash cans on every street corner. And in Los Angeles, they do not have that, which is an interesting concept because it's supposed to be such an environmentally conscious place. But the infrastructure for, for trash and recycling here is, is a joke. Well, people talk about Japan having, it's very difficult to find a trash can on the street. And they're very clean about things. In California, it's probably sanitation not really being forward thinking. I think Japan is like on a yet another level of forward thinking. Uh, yeah, agreed. Tokyo is one of the cleanest places I've ever been in. <laughs> so to be on a second time, how long would it do you think it would take of you picking up trash every day to feel like it's gotten enough where if we have a second conversation, you can talk uh, meaningfully about it? End of the first quarter next year, 2019. Okay. So if it's okay with you, I guess either with you or with after we hang up, then if it's cool, I'll schedule that. And because I'd love to hear the experience. Yeah, no, that'd be awesome. Now, yeah, I'd enjoy, I'd enjoy that a lot. Now, do you, when you said that'd be awesome, are you saying that because you're on a podcast and you're being nice to the host? Or do you really, is that, was that a genuine, was that honest? What's your gauge on me? I think it's, well, <laughs> now I feel silly about having asked the question. <laughs> yeah, you should. Well, I, <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Thank you for um, how and, to put it. And we'll, I'll follow up and tell you why next time I'm on. Okay. Because I, I think I got I, this uh, explanation of why it blow the top of your head off. Ooh. All right. I'm looking forward to that. And uh, now I'm going to say to you something I say to everybody, which is that two things I find that, that make, it, make these challenges difficult for people, not because I know the answers, but just you'll often face two things. One is other people. So sometimes you're stuck with someone the entire day and some people feel a little awkward doing their thing and, or it involves other people. I think yours probably won't involve other people that much, but people have to prepare it helps to prepare, not that they can prepare for everything because unknown things happen. But, you know, if you can't do it, do you give up? Do you say, I'm going to do whatever it takes to do it? You know, I don't know the answer, but just something to think about. And the other is travel. Travel often, when you get out of your world and into another space, 
it can get harder to do these things. So I say that to everyone. I think in your case, it might not be as these challenges might not be as challenging, but um, I bring those up just to prepare you. And then uh, I usually close with a couple questions. One is, is there anything I didn't ask that was you thought to bring up and is worth bringing up for, for you, for the listeners, for anyone? <laughs> That's a catch-all question. No, there isn't anything that I could think of. Okay. And this one is usually more active in the second conversation, but is there anything to say to the listeners? Another catch-all, I guess. But is there anything that you want to say directly to the listeners before wrapping up? You know, yeah, try try showing understanding. Try showing that you understand the other side's point of view before you make your point. I dare you. It's going to be hard. You're going to be dying to have your say. But just give it a try a couple times in some low-stakes conversations. See what kind of a game changer it is. And if you if you find out, you're going you're gonna to go like, ooh, let me try this one. It's really important. So that sounds like a simple exercise anyone can do is to make the other person to state the other person's perspective so that they say that's right. Exactly. You know, it, it reminds me of something I recently heard. I, I heard two people debating and they said, let's start by doing an Iron Man as opposed to, you know, there's a technique of in debate of like creating a straw man argument of the other person defeating the straw man and acting like you actually defeated them. And this is the opposite was to say, to state the other person's perspective so well that they said, yes, that's it. And it led to a very different debate than I was used to because people weren't, I think because of what you just said. That's a fascinating idea. Yeah. I love the terminology is cool too. Iron Man. huh? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Was it Robert Downey Jr. Kind of like, well, yeah, I think it's, and so I was playing with that idea. Now you've put it in a a slightly different way. So I'm going to, I will practice that myself. Well, Chris Voss, Thank you very much, and I look forward to next time. So do I, Joshua. Thank you for having me on. It happens that I just came off a few meetings with EO. I don't know if you know Entrepreneurs Organization. Look it up if you don't, but they're pretty prestigious. So the people in EO that I was talking to were experienced. They started their own businesses. They had at least a million in revenue, so they knew what they were doing. And people there kept saying they didn't have time to improve their leadership as opposed to their management since it was too ethereal and therefore ineffective. I was gratified to see such an experienced and world-class negotiator that he valued social and emotional skills so much. I found his definition of negotiation extraordinarily valuable, as you probably heard, and that's why I made it the opening quote, and I recommend going back and re-listening to it more than once, actually. I was also glad to hear his challenge, and I was glad to hear his breaking down regular communication the way he did. So I can't wait until next time. you feel inspired to then act go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and click to commit to your personal challenge so you can inspire others value means better and worse and living by your values means living better by your values you may struggle at first but it's the hero's journey from living by others values to living by yours people say that little things add up i won't argue against it but what i find counts is acting Doing something, anything, starts that mindset shift from the debilitating others should act first or making excuses to the empowering I can make a difference and living by my values improves my life. I don't have to wait for others to act first. I'm looking for leaders, 
people who will bring what works here in this podcast to communities I haven't reached. Billions of people want to change their behavior. There's room for leadership from personal leadership of just yourself to whatever scale you want. Start by acting and changing yourself. Go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and commit to your personal challenge.